Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have David Stroop, lecturer in Chinese politics at the University of Manchester, and he'll be talking about his new book, Pure and True, The Everyday Politics of Ethnicity for China's Hui Muslims, which was published this year, 2022, by the University of Washington Press. It hopefully goes without saying at this point that Islam in China is a concern whose reach extends well beyond that country's borders. The mass detention of mostly Turkic Muslim residents of Xinjiang is no longer an obscure topic, even to those without a deep interest in Chinese or Islamic affairs. And as a result, the Uyghur and Kazakh people who have been the primary victims of Beijing's strike hard campaign have also become better known. But the history and contemporary identity of the largest single group of Chinese Muslims is less understood outside the country, even if in the present moment it's coming under a similar pressure from those same party state campaigns. The Hui are near ubiquitous across China, with notable communities in most provinces and in both the countryside and the cities, where enclaves have long existed, centred on mosques and clusters of halal butchers and restaurants. It's in these latter urban environments that David Stroop's new book goes looking for the complex negotiations of ethnic, religious, class and other identities that face Hui today. A multi-sided project based on dozens of interviews and ethnographic observation in the cities of Jinan, Yinchuan, Beijing and Xining, this clearly written and persuasive book explores a number of the key areas of everyday Hui political life, from food and dress to marriage and language. Through the lens of these issues, Stroop shows us how people's day-to-day understandings of huiness intersect with the categories put forward by the state, and how grand-scale processes such as urbanization and migration spark more intimate and local debates, which unfold within Hui communities. But to discuss these and other aspects of this excellent book on multiple scales, the author's here to say more, so I'll say, David Stroop, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and I'm really glad to be here. Well, yes, and I should say that unusually for a recording of this nature, uh, we're sitting uh, only a few hundred meters away from one another in Manchester. So uh, it's, a, it's a unique and uh, novel experience for me, uh, as well as an excellent book to have read. Um, but uh, before we get into the book itself, uh, I'll ask you uh, to say a few things about your academic background, how you came to be interested in Islam in China, and indeed to write this book. Sure. Um, so I, I think that like many people who enter into uh, area studies or area studies adjacent work, uh, my interest in China is very much a combination of personal experience and uh, lived experience in the field that kind of bring me to an interest in the topic. So uh, when I was an undergraduate at Davidson College, I kind of decided to study China because of a really excellent seminar class taught by Shelley Rigger, who is, you know, of course, the fantastic scholar of uh, Taiwanese politics, who was teaching then a seminar on Chinese politics. And sort of after that class, it sort of really galvanized me to uh, learn Chinese language and study China and Chinese politics and also study abroad in China. Uh, And so after six months of study abroad in Yunnan, where multiculturalism and ethnic diversity were constant subjects of conversation in our seminars and in our our trips into the field, and after also living with uh, a Hui family, homestay family during this time, um, I was very familiar with the idea that China was a, a big, vibrant, and diverse 
country with lots of different people who comprised the, the Chinese state. And I was really interested with these questions about how people who were not part of the Han majority really fit into this uh, multicultural uh, project that was the, the, the Chinese nation, the Chinese state. And I kind of wanted to examine how uh, both economic development was changing those roles for ethnic minorities and and how uh, cultural preservation was uh, a thing that, that was being uh, sort of practiced in, in, in political and uh, social terms. And as I continued to just become more familiar with China, these questions continued to loom larger and larger. Um, after undergrad, I took uh, a year uh, in the field just working in China, trying to sort of increase my familiarity with uh, the country. I didn't think that I was fully prepared to go jump in, uh, study China from a, a graduate perspective, a graduate degree perspective without having a, a little bit more lived experience. And I took a year in Jinan, uh, one of, a city that would eventually become one of my, my field sites. Uh, I really felt that, you know, I was continuing to encounter these, these questions. And so uh, I really, by the time I got to uh, a grad school position at the University of Oklahoma, where I did my graduate studies, so it would be my PhD, I, I was pretty convinced that the thing that I really wanted to study in Chinese politics uh, was to understand how uh, political institutions of the state interacted with all of these diverse and different people. And I was really interested in the way that the Hui friends that I had made in both in Yunnan and in, in Jinan sort of fit into this picture of identity. And I, I really decided that why my studies needed to be sort of focused on understanding that puzzle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I just wonder, did you have uh, anything relating to your kind of own U.S. Uh, context or, or background in mind when you were learning about these things. Um, I sometimes wonder if, you know, these uh, sort of formative experiences, uh, study abroad and other kinds of fieldwork experiences in other countries, bring to for the four concerns which one might learn about, you know, at an early stage of life uh, in any setting. Uh, but it just happens that if you're in China, these questions of ethnic politics emerge in a Chinese perspective? Like, how much would you say there was something comparative in your head about how these things might play out in China compared to the United States? I think the the ways in which uh, ethnic identity in particular is so categorized and legally encoded in ways that they are not in the U.S., where uh, identification is very much a voluntary experience and it's just sort of an open-ended question. Uh, when, When you are experienced in living and growing up in the United States and, and, and then comparing that to China, those two very different ways of, of self-identification, uh, it can't help but be a comparative point of reference, even if it's not primary salient, uh, primarily salient in, in your mind. So I, I think in some senses, you know, that's always going to be uh, something that you consider as you, as you uh, understand and, and identify these things. As I've continued to study and as I have grown increasingly familiar, you know, throughout the course of my education and through fieldwork experience and everything else, uh, I think the points of comparison become more and more interesting. So uh, in particular, studying Islam in China in, in these days, and this is something maybe we can talk about towards the end, uh, the points of reference between um, how... Islamic uh, experience, Islamic identity in the United States is experienced by American Muslims and how it's experienced by Chinese Muslims is obviously a, a relevant point of comparison for, for today. 
Mm-hmm. And it, well, it's always helpful, I think, if uh, yeah, these kinds of studies can lead to a, a denaturalization of one's own uh, one's own context. Um, but that's great, anyway, to uh, hear a bit about those kind of uh, yes, embodied or, or on the ground experiences that led you to this topic, uh, in, in a sense. And I'm, you know, as a by background, not uh, in in politics, but. Uh, to read something that has so much ethnographic richness and sense of place uh, is, you know, perhaps uh, in one's own um, kind of prejudiced and uh, and narrow-minded view from the outside of what political science might be uh, very refreshing uh, to encounter. Um, so we'll get into the book uh, itself, uh, I think, uh, now. You introduced the Hui as a, as a community and uh, in and some of your own fieldwork experiences uh, in the introduction. Um, but it's kind of, uh, I think, intriguing how you set this up, uh, particularly with a relevant uh, a reference to uh, the relationship between the Hui community and the state at large in terms of conflict, a history of conflict or resistance or rebellion, um, and a, a present day, which I think you, you, it's fair to say you characterize as more sort of Pacific, more, more um at peace and perhaps uh, you know in a relationship of relative calm at least perhaps until recent days with with the central state so what why is that a particular framing that you wanted to draw attention to what is what is this history of of a kind of uneasy relationship and why is it relevant to the contemporary status that you that you highlight there i think it's always important to kind of understand where the historical roots of the present day lie and especially when we talk about relationships between the hui and the chinese state uh whether it's the current prc or various other state projects that have occurred throughout modern or contemporary history, uh, there is that legacy of contentiousness that lies just beneath the surface. And this is something that, you know, people in, especially in Northwest China, where a lot of the contentious politics around uh, Islamic rebellions happened in the 18th and 19th centuries, um, those events are, 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 yes, historical, but in a grand scale, somewhat recent in memory. And so um, they are pertinent to the lives of uh, the people that I was interviewing and also, uh, you know, the religious and uh, cultural heritage of those communities. So I think it's important to uh, contextualize those. I also think it's really important to examine this in terms of the political narratives that the the party puts out. And so the the Communist Party's uh, rhetoric on ethnic politics is one of harmony, inclusion, diversity. And if we're going to scrutinize those narratives, we need to sort of understand uh, both the conditions that ethnic minorities existed in prior to the CCP, as well as uh, the sort of relationships uh, that the the communities have had under uh, the party's rule. And one of the things that the party has really emphasized uh, and has been picked up by uh, major media outlets, including uh, famous and venerable Western publications, the New York Times, The Economist, a bunch of other uh, notable uh, journals of record, is that the way are China's, quote, air quotes, uh, good Muslims, uh, as opposed to the more frictional or conflicting relationships with Uyghurs. And I think part of what I was interested in doing is to demonstrate that, one, those narratives are very historically contentious and very recent, and also um, to kind of poke holes in that idea, because I don't think it has ever been really that representative of the relationship between uh, the state and Islamic communities writ largely, but the Hui in particular. Mm-hmm. And you give us a good sense of, of, of who the Hui are and where they live, and uh, this sense that, yeah, as you say, they're often contrasted in official language, or uh, at least from, especially by outside observers too, uh, with uh, 
Turkic or other Muslim groups, not just not just Uyghurs and Kazakhs, but other Muslim groups who have a contentious relationship with the central state. Um, and you give us some of that history that is often narrated about the Hui as sort of descendants of of traders in past centuries, perhaps from the Middle East, and and the kind of very in, integrated uh, nature of the, this community across the country, identified by the center as a, a Chinese speaking. Uh, minority group as opposed to those that have their own languages. Um, of course, that's not as straightforward as it sounds, which we will, uh, I think, address um, in a bit. Um, but you, you contextualize all of this um, really well. Um, I want to know, uh, you know, what it is that drew you to the kind of low-level, everyday, quiet moments, as you put it, of, uh, of ethnic identification and um, and 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 Hui life, if you like, uh, in the in the settings that you. Uh, that you that you focus on. I think this has been uh, a long-standing academic fascination of mine. Maybe not even just an academic fascination, but the idea of how culture is a carrier for politics and how uh, culture is a way that politics gets. Uh, expressed and interacted. So you, you mentioned briefly that this is sort of unusual for what we, we usually think of as political science. And I, I, I always sort of thought that political science can and should care about micro-interactional moments because these are the, the sort of quiet moments that we, we are talking about that we reference in the book or, are the things that find, lay the foundations for how uh, people understand their sense of belonging in a community, uh, who they are, what they are willing to uh, mobilize for or become politically involved in. And even if these moments appear to be outside of organized political activity, they are not devoid of political significance. And so even you know, as a kid, and this is way outside of my realm of, of, you know, academic study, but even as a kid, I was sort of interested in how things like food and uh, performance and music informed our sense of, of our political selves. And I think uh, the engagement with everyday ethnicity uh, is my academic way of trying to understand how our cultural identities really do inform and influence our expressions of ethnic, national, political identities. Right. And it's often those exact traits uh, or a selection of them that are elevated by central state projects that want to celebrate certain components of ethnic identity. You know, again, cuisine and dress and so on are very popular ones. But uh, I think what you do very deftly in this book is try to tease out where uh, there are correspondences and divergences between those things that are kind of elevated by central state narrative about who the Hui are and then how those things are reflected on by communities themselves. Um, but onto those communities, uh, I mentioned in the intro, the four cities in which you conducted research. Um, why did you choose those ones? And uh, what what do you feel that you got that was a sort of uh, common Hui experience out of them? That's a very large question, that second part. But yeah, what were your grounds for choosing the four that you did? Uh, so I think uh, to sort of bridge uh, this question with the last one, uh, you know, it, it is sort of inevitably the case that these identities and these practices are contested and they are uh, subject of negotiation and debate and interaction and you know, they're, they're, dyna- they're dynamic and fluid. Uh, you know, this is very much embracing the sort of constructivist turn in uh, the study of nationalism and ethnic politics. And so when I set up my study, a multi-sided uh, study, I wanted to sort of reflect the diversity and heterogeneity, uh, heterogeneity of of Hui experiences, um, especially because the Hui themselves are a group that, as we have pointed out previously, they don't have uh, the same sort of uh, 
foundational ethnic narrative as as the the party's other recognized ethnic minority groups. These are uh, you know communities that trace their lineages back to various uh, roots in. Uh, the Arabian Peninsula, ancient Persia, uh, Central Asia, or more realistically, probably converts from uh, Han communities that since have adopted these lineages themselves. And so I wanted to sort of showcase the ways in which uh, diversity of both uh, cultural heritage and also sort of geographic and, and demographic positioning uh, really influenced uh, how identity was contested and, and marked out. And as to sort of how these sites got chosen, um, I am a huge proponent, methodologically speaking, of doing pilot studies. Um, I think, you know, going into a field site cold and trying to sort of understand what's happening on the ground um, is not necessarily the way that you would want to approach doing this. So I took a, a month pilot study in July of 2014 and basically visited all of these sites uh, and a couple of others. Uh, I had brief interactions in Lanzhou and Lingxia and uh, several other places uh, that I wanted to try and explore uh, the sites and see whether or not the kinds of phenomena that I was interested in looking at, the sort of urban transformation and the movement of people across space uh, was occurring in these sites. And so after a a pretty thorough pilot study, um, I I felt like this was a, a broad and diverse representation of way experiences uh, throughout China, though obviously there are important uh, experiences that I could not accommodate because of reasons of time and funding. And so, you know, obviously this is one view of of these dynamics. And as for uh, common experiences, I think uh, not just in Hui communities, but in China writ broadly, one of the common experiences that uh, came out of looking at ethnographic uh, observations of of urban centers is the experience of change and transformation that reorients uh, traditional habits, practices, and expressions of identity in every community that I visited, um, in every community that I stayed in from you know, an East Coast city like Jinan to a part of China's Northwest like Xining, uh, these these forces of urban transformation, the change in, in demographics, the change in uh, urban infrastructure, the remaking of urban space was really altering the way that people had lived for the past 20, 30, 40 years. And that these changes were recontesting and reopening understandings of what it was to be a part of a community. And, and I, that I found fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's it, telling an important story about contemporary China at large, I suppose, because if there's one thing that uh, people think a bit about China, uh, or well, one a number, of, one among a number of things, but uh, the urbanization kind of story of the last uh, few decades has been obviously a very a, a landmark occurrence and uh, lots of different people's negotiations with that um, are very important, I think, uh, to consider. Um I should say too that you know the diversity of experiences you highlight, the way you kind of dissect uh, these di- different uh, locations. Uh, obviously, the capital city Beijing, where Hui live among a uh, by far outnumbered by mostly Han, but lots of other peoples living in Beijing, in Jinan, which is almost exclusively a Han city, but with a small Hui enclave in Ningxia, where uh, or in Yinchuan, the capital of Ningxia, which is a Hui autonomous region where Hui are what 30 30 35 percent something something around that and then in Xining where 
there's actually a much more distributed sort of uh, multi-ethnic setting with with Tibetans and Salar and other uh, minority groups. So I think uh, you give a really interesting spread there and also highlight, you know, a kind of urban diversity which might not always jump out at, uh, you know, uh, sort of casual observers of Chinese cities, which, you know, I don't think it's too damning to say increasingly have certain resemblances these days, at least in terms of physical form. Uh, so I think that, that that's a really interesting piece of insight. Um, but onto that urbanization question, um, and the kind of negotiations of identity that you highlight. Uh, how is it, do you think, that uh, ethnicity kind of is significant uh, within urbanization? I mean, in, in so many ways, I think people of all kinds of different, you know, people have found their backgrounds, uh, their previous experiences completely uprooted in China by the rapid pace of urbanization. So what is distinctive about uh, Hui experience of ethnicity within this uh, broader urbanization kind of process? I mean, are they not just dealing with the same things that everyone else is dealing, I guess, is uh, the most uh, the most rudimentary way of asking that question. Well, I, I think it's important to say that we are dealing with the, the same things that everybody else is dealing with. And that's important to highlight that these are not necessarily exclusive challenges to the way, but that the same dynamics that affect Hui uh, communities about renegotiation of identity or, or competing understandings of, of community are I, I don't want to say universal in China, but they are increasingly prominent, especially in urban communities. And so I think, you know, similar uh, examinations of other ethnic communities or, you know, class-based communities or what have you um, would be similarly revealing. But uh, specifically, I think uh, for the study of ethnicity, there are some distinct advantages of looking at urban landscapes as opposed to others. Um in particular, urban landscapes become arenas for the contestation of different understandings of identity. So people from different places come together in urban landscapes who are more likely to encounter uh, people who are not from your ethnic community or people who have arrived from different parts of your uh, ethnic community from throughout uh, the, the nation, throughout the state. Uh, and so those those spaces, those neighborhoods become these uh, arenas for different understandings of how one embodies their ethnic identity, uh, different practices different traditions, different uh, celebrations, different food ways, everything else. These, these are these uh, interactive spaces where uh, things come together. Also, in the case of Hui, and, and, and not exclusively for Hui, these patterns exist in other countries as well. You know, we know in uh, places like the United States, there are ethnic enclaves in, in cities that establish uh, ethnic networks and ethnic economies. Um, we think of like the Chinatown model of an ethnic enclave as something that exists in the West and, and elsewhere. Um, in, in Hui communities, there are similar ethnic networks because of the necessity of building up resources related to religious practice. So uh, the way that this is commonly explained by people like Drew Gladney and others uh, who did these foundational studies of, of Hui culture and who uh, on in many ways I try and build on their foundations, um, they explain that you know, in Hui communities, uh, a mosque is a, is a central space around which uh, businesses, social life, dietary uh, habits are, are all formed. So the mosque and the marketplace are these centers of uh, ethnic identity that are that are sort of perpetuating Hui identity through daily practice. And in, in that sense, because of these ethnic networks, these ethnic enclaves, uh, there are great opportunities to see how uh, Hui identity is perpetuated vis-a-vis -a, -vis a more visible other, whether that other is Han or Salar or Tibetan or, or what have you. And so I think 
exploring Hue identity in urban landscapes was in, important for that reason as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that, that, yeah, that makes plenty of sense. And I think uh, a real kind of uh, point of interest of, of this book is that you yourself are seeking to answer some questions about uh, Hue negotiations of ethnic identity. Um, and you point out later in the book that, you know, it's a sort of uh, commonplace, uh, I think you say, among kind of studies of uh, ethnic politics, that anyone who goes out looking for ethnicity is going to find it, right? That might apply to anyone doing any kind of research projects that if you if you think you're going to find something, you probably better find it. Otherwise, you're not going to, not going to, you know, get your thing written and all that. But uh, anyway, uh, you, you mentioned that, but, but in a sense as well, of course, you're, uh, respondents your interlocutors in these various locations are themselves looking for something or you know that that makes it sound a bit romanticized perhaps but they are involved in in negotiations and it's mostly those internal negotiations that you draw out uh, rather than committing yourself to any particular rigid definition uh, of of hueyness as you know as perhaps favored by uh, certain party states we might name um so I just wonder if we get into those kind of negotiations, um, and we'll, you know, go into a bit more of the detail as we go through the chapters. Um, how? What are, what are the terms of these uh, kind of uh, debates? Uh, what what sorts of things are Huey, uh, I guess, themselves looking for? If that if that's a, not too simplistic a question, and how do those intersect with the categories promoted by the state? Well, yeah, I think that this is a really important point to highlight here. Uh, I went into this study expecting that a lot of the the identity marker, significant, the significant identity markers that I would find, the sort of negotiations and, and debates would be unfolding between Huey and the majority Han or Huey and perhaps other ethnic minority groups in the case of, of Xining. Uh, I thought that th- there would be this us-them uh, dichotomy. And one of the things that I found once I got into the field was that often they were far more interested in telling me about how they were different from other groups of play and how their version of playness uh, was the sort of most uh, realistic, the most representative, the, the truest form of, of way identity. And I, I think, you know, this is again, a reminder for anyone doing field work uh, that, once you get into the field, your project will completely change and you will just need to uh, embrace that. Uh, but I think once I started pulling that thread, what I, what I found most interesting was that uh, all of these sort of discussions about what it meant to be Hui centered on a number of different conversations like the level of devotion that you invested in practicing your faith or the ability to speak the language of the faith, Arabic, Quranic Arabic, or uh, ancestral dialects like Persian or, or Turkic languages or what have you. Uh, how, how able were you to, to do these things? Should you be able to do these things? Um, increasingly, you know, there were debates about how you observed a halal diet or whether one needed to observe halal diet or in, in some senses, whether you needed to do really anything at all other than to be registered as Huey to be Huey. It's all these different sort of conceptualizations of a very secularized cultural sense of I'm, I'm Huey because my ID card says that I'm Huey and, you know, I, I identify as Huey because that's what my government documentation says to a conceptualization that says, actually, I'm Huey, but more importantly than anything else, I'm a Muslim and I'm a practicing Muslim and I am of this Islamic tradition and, you know, I... I observe these rituals, what have you. These were the kinds of debates that I was finding uh, sort of hashed out, and they varied uh, very intensely depending upon 
who I was talking to, uh, what regions they came from, what their urban versus rural background was, whether they were sort of recently arrived in an urban context, what level of education, what uh, kind of career path they had chosen. So like all of these different factors were very much at play in articulations of what it was to be a member of this community. And I, I wanted to really understand uh, how those contributed to sort of a relationship with the state and its established categories. Because, you know, as with any other group, uh, the Hui have this officially designated and, and very carefully spelled out set of criterion by which they are identified by the Chinese state. And oftentimes those did not align with what individual expressions of Huiness were. Right, right. And uh, I mean, I, I think another strength of, of, of what you outline uh, in describing some of those negotiations is a, a, an unstable relationship quite often, one that is not obviously resolved uh, between terms like Hui and Muslim, like whether, uh, you know, you, you know, it's kind of asking uh, people uh, w- what the difference was, if there was one, and, and people not necessarily being able to commit one way or the other. Some people might, some people might not. But, uh, you know, these categories are not always things that uh, people, you know, uh, willingly buy into all the time in the same way, even, even within one person. Uh, so I think being comfortable with that sort of unresolved quality is, uh, is another um, important aspect of, of the kind of uh, what you what you sort of uh, draw out here. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think uh, we've got a good sense now of, uh, of sort of the contours of the book at large and, and the story you're telling in many ways, I think of a kind of, uh, if you like, nested uh, negotiation with a certain kind of uh, you know, urban modernity or something, which uh, you know reminds me a bit of a comment I think uh, anthropologist Andrew Kipnis made about China being a sort of world in which modernity and and the, and the world's modernity processes are sort of unfolding. Um, because uh, lots of the stories you you narrate are redolent of kind of broader global scale negotiations by. Uh, I suppose uh, peoples and 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 polities and, and uh, groups with you know when confronted by. Kind of Euro-American modernity uh, in in previous times, or in, indeed ongoing negotiations. So uh, I think that 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 lends a real comparative uh, interest to the work as well. Um, but uh, yes, we jump into uh, chapter one now, and and I should say that uh, the book is divided uh, into uh, six chapters, uh, five or well, five chapters, and a, and a conclusion, um, which kind of dissect a variety of different uh, dimensions of these negotiations, which we've already talked about. Um, But uh, your first chapter actually uh, sort of zooms in a little closer to uh, this state uh, role. And I think that's, you know, that's important not to have the state as a sort of boogeyman hovering in the background with all sorts of assumed agendas. Uh, You do actually go into some detail uh, talking about the Kind of state's own agenda and, and ethnic politics in the Xi Jinping era, uh, as the uh, chapter one is subtitled. So, could you say something about uh, the kind of party approach to ethnicity at large, uh, the Minzu policy, right? This uh, ethnic policy uh, in the Xi era, and uh, what, you know, what are they? Uh, what are they trying to do? Uh, basically, I guess is, is the question. Yes. So, for listeners who might not be familiar, uh, China recognizes ethnic minorities via a system of classification and registration, which which gives uh, citizens one and exclusively one ethnic identity, uh, Minzu identity, Minzu being a neologism that is difficult to translate, but is often uh, sort of meant to mean ethnicity. Uh, and in the past, uh, prior to the, the the era of Xi Jinping, uh, the way that China has regulated ethnic politics, it's, it's kind of... Uh, 
drifted back and forth between uh, different poles, but uh, there has been an attempt at a recognition of ethnic identity as a form of official diversity uh, to showcase the regime tolerance and uh, sort of multiculturalism, especially contrasting to uh, perhaps previous eras in Chinese history. There have also been uh, attempts to uh, sort of promote official recognition of ethnic identity via uh, preferential treatment policies, uh, such as subsidies for uh, maybe subsidies for religious practice for Muslims, for instance, for buying halal meat or uh, recognized holidays for ethnic minorities to celebrate traditional holidays. Or uh, the one that is almost always uh, cited is extra points on your college entrance examinations and and exemptions to the prior one-child policy. So there was this uh, broad network of preferential policies to sort of recognize ethnic minorities uh, and promote uh, ethnic identification in attempts to sort of meld ethnic identity into uh, a multicultural Chinese state. In the the Xi era, there has been a sort of a revisitation of this project as the sort of uh, post-Mao era opening and reform has emphasized a sort of performance-oriented legitimacy in in Chinese politics in that uh, the party claims legitimacy by being able to promote material advantage, material progress, economic growth, and increasingly as China's economic growth has has slowed a little bit from its white-hot peak in the uh, early 2000s to a more uh, steady and stable but diminishing economic growth, there's been a a focus on stability, which is a a far more nebulous and tricky concept uh, than economic performance. And this stability takes a lot of different forms, including in ethnic politics. And stability in ethnic politics under Xi Jinping has meant, you know, sort of harmonious ethnic relations as defined by the state and a sort of uh, emphasis on the idea that all members of the the Chinese system of nationalities, Zhonghua Minzu, this uh, this overarching uh, Chinese national identity that the party is trying to solidify and construct, are... uh, Equitable that these that these shares of the prosperity that the, the party has has brought are are equal, but the the problem as I try and explore a little bit in the book is that oftentimes when you examine day to day relationships those those narratives kind of fall apart a little where you see uh, daily instances of discrimination be they uh, sort of more microaggressive in terms of uh, putting out ethnic stereotypes and sort of broadcasting about uh, ethnic minority identity. In the case of Hui, it's usually some sort of cartoon version of Hui identity related to selling of ethnic foodstuffs like the uh, sort of nearly universal lanzhou ramen, the sort of beef soup noodles that you see vended all over China, or uh, indeed the more aggressive and uh, nefarious expressions of discrimination, which are uh, calling Hui Muslims terrorists or associating them with ISIS or any of the other kinds of things that uh, you might imagine, the Islamophobic reactions that occur all over the world, uh, they also happen in China's relationships between uh, Han and Hui. And so the dynamics of uh, Han-Hui relationships and indeed like Han minority relationships during the Xi era is this rhetorical commitment to diversity for legitimating purposes and a much more complicated picture on the interpersonal level. Right. And actually, that leads us very naturally into uh, chapter two, which is uh, the first of four chapters which deal with uh, broad themes of choosing, talking, consuming and performing as sort of vectors of uh, of Hui identity or negotiations of of Hui identity. So the choosing element is uh, promoted, uh, uh, concerned primarily with um, 
with uh, marriage or and uh, and also i guess uh, the offspring of marriages and how much um uh the role of faith uh, is emphasized when uh, we choose a marriage partner so could you say uh, something about what is at stake when uh, we get married and 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 what happens kind of both within and beyond the community uh, is there an emphasis placed on on conversion you you mentioned hand converts of pastimes or perhaps people of other faiths converting um yeah what what's uh, what's the kind of emerging picture of marriage which I should say too, you know, is is a key kind of urban phenomenon because given what you already mentioned about the kind of collisions of people, different peoples within cities. Yeah, I think that this is a really important uh, puzzle to sort of figure out for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, because it is tied to official status of citizenship. So there is uh, a definite pressure related to state identification and uh, the receipt of certain types of state-associated benefits with being an ethnic minority that come attached to this. There are also cultural considerations from a more uh, orthodox Islamic uh, sort of understanding about uh, what the role of faith in, in relationships ought to be that is relevant in some play communities that are more pious, which emphasize that uh, you know in order to join in union with uh, an Islamic family, one must be a, a Muslim, and so conversion is, is necessary. Uh, and, and perspectives on this ranged a- across groups, and I would talk to people who were in sort of more secular uh, or non-religious way households where uh, Hui identity was mainly a, a government uh, demographic uh, expression or maybe a cultural one more than a religious one. And for these uh, couples, the conversation about uh, who one married and uh, what that would mean for the status of one's potential children uh, were, a, you know, these were these were matters of sort of self-interest that, um, you know, proclaiming a certain identity would be important if this child of, of this mixed marriage uh, would be uh, receiving state-associated economic benefits, what have you, uh, did it pay to be officially Hui in, in a demographic sense? You know, did, did was it important to receive those, those benefits? Uh, in more pious or more orthodox religious communities, uh, the question about marriage and, and particularly childbirth were uh, issues of continuing faith and, and culture. And there was a, a fear, I think a lot of respondents of mine expressed to me that if someone married from outside the community of faith, then potentially their children would not be taught how to be Muslims. They would not be taught how to be members of this religious community and they might secularize and that might be detrimental to the survival of the community and also for the, you know, personal salvation, I guess, of the, of the child. Uh, and so there was this taboo sort of against marrying outside the faith, but for instance, in Xining, where there is a significant population of ethnic salars who, live alongside Hui and practice Islam, there were notions that, you know, you, yeah, marrying within the Islamic community, marrying a Salar, marrying uh, a, a, a member of another Islamic minority group was fine as long as that child was brought up, you know, if, if you had children, that the child was brought up to be Muslim. So these are these sort of competing pressures. And I think that makes these these choices about citizenship and marriage of particular importance. It's also important that, and, and I think this is something that I didn't quite uh, get to delve into at the length that I, I wish that I would have in the book, but this is also uh, something that places a lot of pressure on women in particular as being uh, the bearers of culture and responsibility for uh, the, the bearers of identity. And so 
these become really gendered choices as well, in the sense that um, in, in many cases, uh, the pressure to to choose correctly is greater for women than it is for men. And, and that is a, a real important thing to sort of highlight there. Right, absolutely. Yeah, that, that kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of uh, very deft intersectional, I think, discussion that you conduct throughout the book and questions of gender, of class, uh, and, and as well as ethnic and religious identification, um, all, all are, you know, kind of rendered uh, in, in ways that, again, I think, you know, are not easily uh, resolvable uh, or kind of easily packageable or categorizable. Um, and, uh, and, and again, I think that's, uh, you know, something that is uh, uh, interesting and, and thought-provoking uh, about the book itself. Um, the next couple of chapters that deal with uh, language, um, particularly Arabic language, but I guess also, as you've mentioned, uh, Persian and other specific linguistic uses um, by Huey communities, and then also uh, consumption, um, and and diet and, and food stuff. So I wonder, uh, actually, if we might approach those two chapters through a sort of uh, almost terminological uh, angle. Um, as, as I've said, I mean, uh, the state identifies the Hui as a, a Chinese-speaking minority, right, or a Chinese-speaking uh, minzu. Um, in terms of the sorts of lang- uh, term and terms that Hui use to discuss language that they might use that is you know, distinctive to them, um, there are two kind of key ideas, it seems to me, one of them being Jingwen, uh, and then uh, this other kind of more encompassing or perhaps nebulous idea of Hui Hua. So could you say uh, first perhaps what Hui Hua might be or is, literally means sort of Hui speech, right, or Hui language, uh, but the state says that doesn't exist. So what, what is... Uh, What's Hui Hua? Well, uh, it's not even so much that the state says that that doesn't exist. It just isn't even on the state's radar. Um, a Hui Hua is uh, a sort of a, a, a very locally determined kind of, of thing where each Hui community has a local dialect just as they would have a local dialect of, of Mandarin or or whatever language you know China, in the Chinese language family is predominant. Uh, and a lot of people explained it in different ways. They, you know, there were some people who talked about a Qinghai Hui Hua in, in Xining, or um, you know, there was a, an imam in, in, in Beijing that I spoke to who talked about how there was a Beijing Hui Hua that, uh, <laughs> in his words, you know, oh, you hear it, he, he would tell me, you hear it when, when we do the call to prayer. It, it sounds like, you know, uh, you know, singing Beijing opera. It's, it's very localized. And, and, and when you sort of dig into these roots of linguistic ancestry in, in these communities, you find that they all have very localized origins, and it, it very much depends upon who uh, the Muslims that entered into the community to be the original sort of core of the community were. Um, I was talking to a, a colleague of mine in Jinan about this, and I was sort of asking him that one of the, the, the major sort of expressions that uh, we find this sort of Hui Hua taking place in is the idea that there are specific surnames that are attached to uh, transliterations of Islamic names that have been adopted by Hui communities. And of course, they differ from place to place. So there is the universal Ma is Muhammad usually understood to be Muhammad. And then there are a couple of others that get brought up, but, uh, you know, there are many others that are less uh, specific to uh, globalized uh, Islam and more rooted in a particular community. Like in, in Jinan Fa is a common Hui surname. And when I was asking my, my friend about this as well, you know, that's from Fatola, which was a uh, the name of a, a Turkic general who occupied the city during the UN dynasty and blah, 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 blah. And it really highlighted for me that this was a very localized 
dialect that people sort of would would speak. Now, like many other localized dialects, you know, Huihua is declining. So people don't speak it anymore or not with the same level of proficiency because of language language standardization, because of the promotion of Putonghua, because of secularization, because of all kinds of other things. And so, you know, this sort of local, this idea of a localized Hui speech, particular to each Hui community that borrows loan words from Persian or Turkic or Arabic is something that increasingly is becoming, you know, a, a feature of the past. Mm-hmm. And you also uh, identify a number of particular, I guess, circumlocutions or, or sort of ex- modes of expression that uh, avoid perhaps uh, or, or circumvent direct uh, ev- ev- use of terms like like die and kill and, and certain sorts of terms lodged within Chinese uh, that are uh, also sort of specific um, modes of speech, which, you know, again, not to harp on endlessly about this sort of theme, but sort of defy in some senses a kind of neat neat categorization, a sort of taxonomy. Um, uh, Jingwen also interested me as a, as a topic, uh, I guess, uh, it's the sort of uh, scriptural language, if I've understood that right, and, and uh, the, the often heavily sinicized uh, version of Arabic ri- that is used for um, uh, religious purposes among Hui communities who may actually not really speak or understand Arabic for itself. And also, I think when you write Arabic in Chinese characters, as with any uh, language that with a different syllabic form, it renders it extremely different. But it was interesting to read about the way that that is distinguished from Arabic, Alaboyu, uh, the language of Arabic-speaking countries as a contemporary uh, kind of language in the world. Um, and again, you know, with the overarching theme of urbanization, you identify very neatly, I think, the uh, negotiations that have to go on where the decision to learn uh, Arabic or, or a, a scriptural language uh, often is seen to come at the expense of learning other things that might advance your career and you know the eternal conundrum I guess of the um, sort of modern urbanized minority subjects uh, in China or indeed anyone seeking to preserve ethnic identity at the expense of other things um, but uh, Chapter four brings us on to the uh, the title of the actual book, which seems an odd thing only just to have mentioned uh, 45 minutes in. Um, but uh, I guess, can we take a similar approach to Qingzhen, this idea of, well, literally, I guess, character by character, pure and true. Um, what does, uh, what does, what, how is this word used? What does it mean? Uh, and, uh, and what does that say about what's going on in Hui communities? Yeah, uh, so Qingzhen is one of those terms that I think has multiple meanings uh, depending upon what level of academic uh, discourse you want to dive into. On a practical level, for most way throughout uh, China, Qingzhen is halal. Uh, just in an everyday application of the term, Qingzhen is a transliteration of halal. And so we talk about Qingzhen food, right? Qingzhen shipping or, uh, you know, Qingzhen restaurants, you know. Uh, but on a more sort of deep level, Qingzhen uh, is pure and true. It is an expression that uh, often sort of encapsulates what it is to be Muslim, to observe Islamic custom. And so Drew Gladney calls Qingzhen the core of Hui identity, that uh, Hui ethnic identity is centered on expressions, varying expressions of pure and true. Uh, Maris, Maris Boyd Gillette does a, a similar explanation of this. Um, the way that I encountered it most often was people talking about their, their dietary habits and eating Qingzhen is 
like many other things, the sort of spectral understanding of what it means to maintain a, a halal diet, everything from some of my friends who are more secular. I have a very long time friend in Jinan who understood Qingzhen to mean essentially when I go to uh, eat with friends or at a restaurant or when I cook at home, you know, I don't eat pork, but everything else is okay. Um, to other Hui who would tell me that that's absolutely wrong, uh, that, that Qingzhen is about making sure that everything that you use to cook the food is ritually clean and that all of the, the foodstuffs have been, especially meats, have been prepared in a way that has been blessed by an imam. And there are these ritual cleanliness practices. So there's this like broad range of understandings of what Qingzhen means. And one of the most uh, fundamental disruptions in this uh, aside from you know what level of 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 religious oversight does does need to be prepared for the food is is alcohol okay to to have uh because you know alcohol abstention from alcohol is one of the principal sort of command you know fundamental axioms of islamic faith according to the quran but you know play all over china do drink Alcohol. Uh, some of them, you know, some of the communities say that alcohol is, you know, just a thing that we we consume, and it's it's these competing understandings of whether that disqualifies you from saying that you are really practicing Qingzhen. Um, this is especially true in places like uh, Jinan and and Yinchuan, where you have these thriving industries of, uh, particularly shaokao barbecue, uh, and that are almost exclusively run by. Muslims by Hui, and in Jinan especially, the Hui Quarter is a place where you go to eat yang rou chuar, where you eat uh, lamb kebabs, and drink keg beer late into the night. And not only do people partake in this, but they benefit from the sale of it. And so there's this contentiousness built around, well, is that really acceptable for good Hui, good Muslims to do? And then you, you see, again, we have this interaction of, you know, Hui as a, as a cultural and ethnic identity versus this overriding religious identity that says, actually, as, as Muslims, we should not serve uh, alcohol, we should not serve, uh, you know, things that would be considered unclean. And in Xining, by contrast, you still have a thriving barbecue industry, but people in Xining would tell me, you know, if we served keg beer alongside our, our Yang Chuar, no one would ever come to patronize our restaurants. We'd be shut down within a day. So it's this really interesting contrast. I mean, what level of scrutiny are you are you paying? And part of the reason for this is as well, uh, which I kind of note in the book, and there are like ethnic entrepreneurs with an agenda to try and regulate and standardize this because there is no real standard nationally for halal certification. And that leads to all kinds of ambiguity that filters down into communities. Yeah. Right. I mean, you even, you mentioned a particularly kind of amusing, perhaps tongue in cheek remark by uh, someone you met running a bar, which he identified as Qingzhen, uh, despite obviously its main product being alcohol, but Qingzhen in this sense meant, as far as I recall, kind of clean, pure, fresh alcohol, and also real, uh, genuine foreign alcohol. Uh, so this is this is a particularly stretching the uh, the boundaries. Of the that, that was that was a particularly interesting character is a man who uh, wore a giant uh, jade 
Buddha amulet around his neck and was, it was very much not a Muslim, was not Hui, but was Han in Yinchuan and thought, this is a way that I can bring in business and went as far as to put not just the characters Qingzhen, but like the Arabic for halal on the sign of his Qingzhen Jouba. And when we, and we, when we asked him, what, what does this mean to you or what, do you think that it's okay to be doing this? He seemed very unconcerned and actually not even really aware of, of why that might be controversial. Right, right. No, extremely, uh, extremely creative and uh, and interesting um, uh, is one thing you could say about that. Um, I wonder, uh, as we kind of uh, get towards uh, towards the end of our time. I mean. Um, I might move over uh, chapter five and we'll come back uh, to the kind of ritual and, and um, actual, you know, Islamic practice, if you like, uh, worship and so on, uh, because I think that has relevance to sort of something of the contemporary situation. But um, in the conclusion, uh, there's actually plenty that's sort of uh, new in the conclusion or, or, or kind of, uh, you know, doesn't just uh, summarize what's gone before. Um, so I wonder uh, what you described there is is a kind of uh, overall process between these internal negotiations that we've discussed a bit today and how that intersects with again this state uh, sort of emphasis this state message about ethnic identity um how do you see the dynamics playing out then between these internal negotiations among Hui people that you identified right right the way back at, uh, at the start there concerns over uh, secularization or kind of generic urban identity um, and 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 the state and its own interests. Well, so first of all, I think you've highlighted something that must have driven uh, my editors crazy. So Steve Harrell is uh, someone who deserves a lot of credit for not losing his mind for uh, seeing that there is a bunch of new ground covered in the conclusion and thinking, what is this guy up to? Um, so patient editors, thumbs up for patient editors. Um, in, in response to this sort of summarization by introducing these, reintroducing these dynamics, I think when you pull back and you look at the contestation that occurs over the different aspects of Hui identity, what we observe is really a, a relationship where the processes of development, the processes of modernization, the processes of urbanization, the movement of people from uh, east to from west to east and, and from rural to urban and all of these interactions, what it does is it sort of channels. It channels contestation in a way that diffuses tension with the state. And one of the hallmarks of authoritarian governance is that you try to, you know, avoid overt suppression where you can. Suppression is costly. Uh, it backfires. It may mobilize resistance. And and what you don't want to do is you don't want to harden uh, dividing lines between groups that might form interests against the state and the state. And so, you know, in in most situations, China's ethnic governance is trying to channel ethnic politics in a way that focuses contention inward. It focuses on these debates about, well, what does it really mean to eat a Qingzhen diet? Or what does it really mean to, you know, uh, practice uh, Arabic in, uh, practice uh, Islam in, in, in correct Arabic or to uh, make correctly within the community or, or what have you. These are all debates within the community that don't contest the state's definitions because they are busy sort of hashing them out on these intersecting lines of class, of education, of region, of profession, of gender. Um, and if you can do that as an authoritarian state, you diffuse tensions. You, you sort of uh, you know, shove to the side these, these potential challenges to state authority. It's when those boundaries harden 
and the lines become clearly defined, the community against others, and others in this case would be a Han-centric state-building project from China, um, that's when you have friction and resistance that disrupts uh, these narratives of legitimacy and stability and you know good governance by the party. And so the party's objective over the last several decades has been to neutralize uh, this kind of contestation by channeling it inward. And this is not just something that happens in play communities, it happens across uh, ethnic minority communities within China, but it also happens in any number of different areas, right? Authoritarian channeling is a, a broad practice that the, the state undertakes. Um, and, you know, in, in a lot of ways, the, the state has been successful in creating a, a situation where it neutralizes resistance to its ethnic policies by affecting these sort of channeling uh, practices. So the situations we see with, you know, Uyghurs or, or Tibetans, where there is that sort of organized resistance, uh, mobilized resistance, um, is often sort of an exception rather than the rules. Something that James Liebold talks a lot about in some of his work uh, in, in ethnic politics regarding Tibet and, and Xinjiang. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and well, I mean, I suppose where that channeling uh, and, and that desire to kind of uh, get get dis- differences, you know, hashed out internally. Um, one, one very interesting thing about that, of, of course, is to look at how much urban life, how much urban, I guess, uh, in James Scott's idea, legible communities suit the Chinese Communist Party, you know, wh- whose origins and, and whose early sort of career was so avowedly rural and agrarian. Um, uh, so that that kind of uh, you know, um, practice is, is a certainly something that says something interesting, I think, about about the party. Um, as a final question, and one over which I think the party hovers uh, also uh, considerably, um, I wanted to get back to, you know, your chapter, which deals with uh, faith and ritual and, and, and worship. Uh, seems odd in, in a way to only have come to that now, but uh, because it's so resonant with uh, more recent developments, I wondered if you could say something about uh, the place of that within these uh, kind of longer term negotiations and then what's happening you know among the communities uh, that you did field work uh, with since you know since you did the field work and, and under the more uh, the sort of harsher stricter regime that has emerged in recent years this is a really important question to highlight i think because there is a sort of pre-2016 reality and a post-2016 reality that are, are important to note so Hui islam has always been sort of accused of or uh, contested about these ideas of indigenization of Islamic practices, uh, synchronism, syncretism, and, and, and sort of this divergence from uh, Islam that occurs in the Arabian Peninsula or the Middle East or what have you. Um, uh, a good friend and colleague of ours, Ryan Thumb, talks about how this is sort of a, a, an inappropriate way to think about Islam, so that there is no syncretism because there is no such thing as a pure form of Islam, but where Islam has adapted to localized traditions in China, there are these debates over where there are like Sufi practice of uh, remembering saints in, in a, a sort of formal ritualistic practice that to some people takes on elements of Taoist or Confucian or what have you localized practices acceptable or whether Muslims ought to uh, sort of embrace a more uh, reformist uh, Middle East oriented version of Islam. And so in 
in the Hui communities that I observed, there was this question of uh, what was a sufficient level of devotion? You know, did one need to wear a headscarf every day? Uh, if, if Did one need to wear a, a prayer hat? Did one need to uh, pray five times a day? Did one need to pray weekly or pray at all? You know, uh, these were all kinds of questions that uh, kind of came up. And even among religiously devout communities, the, the question was sort of, did one need to practice a more traditionalist Islam uh, which was always always posed as you know this sort of reformist Islam from uh, the Middle East, or was it okay to be a, a Chinese Sufi to practice these and you know localized Islamic practices? So there were all these different levels of uh, contestation. And what this really highlights for me when we look at the present situation is that um, increasingly uh, the Chinese state has become hostile to expressions of faith that come from outside of China. And so anything that would be foreign or uh, would bear the influence of uh, a, a non-Chinese tradition is is uh, labeled as suspicious and labeled as potentially dangerous, potentially destabilizing. And in particular, this is true of Islam, which is often depicted in uh, Chinese media as this sort of binary between you have this international Islam, which is associated with terrorism, with ISIS, with um, religious fundamentalism, and you have a, a localized Chinese Islam that is managed by the party state and is patriotic and, and whatnot. And what, what we've seen uh, since I left the field in 2016 um, especially in, in Uyghur communities. And I, and I want to be very clear here that um, the things that are happening in Uyghur and, and Turkic-speaking, uh, Kazakh and other Turkic-speaking communities in, in what China calls the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region, what others call East Turkestan or the Uyghur homeland, um, these are uh, on, a, on a scale and a level that is completely different than what is happening to Hui communities. So you have, you know, at, you know, Credible evidence of uh, Hui, or sorry, uh, Muslims being detained in, in concentration camps, held indefinitely, uh, going through all kinds of human rights abuses and, and whatnot. So I want to I want to be clear to note that what's happening in Hui communities is not on that scale, but within Hui communities we see an increased uh, an increased effort to sinicize or to oversee the expression of Islam. Um, Xi Jinping in 2017 and his address to the party congress says that all religions in China need to be Chinese in orientation. And what that means for Hui communities is that, you know, the religious practice needs to be sort of informed by party values, that uh, mosques and places of worship need to exhibit native Chinese architectural styles, that Arabic is uh, being downplayed as a uh, textual language in a visible sense in place spaces, that uh, all these kinds of efforts to uh, stop what Xi Jinping calls extremism or Islamic fundamentalism, which is really should be read as foreign Islam, are intended to increase uh, synoptic control uh, by the party state. So that's kind of the situation we find ourselves in now, where the sort of once approved practices of multiculturalism and diversity are increasingly running up against these urges to sinicize, control, streamline, and otherwise oversee expression of religious faith, even in Quay communities. Right. Well, yeah, and uh, that does, I think, bring us up to up to the moment and uh, and roughly to the end of our conversation uh, with some very important uh, stuff to conclude there. So uh, thank you very much, David. Um, you've taken up uh, some of your time today, but uh, before we let you go, uh, 
would you like to say something about what you're currently working on, whether it's an expansion of uh, this project or uh, or a complete departure, or what have you got in the pipeline? I think in many ways it's not a complete departure. It is an attempt to kind of expand this conversation. Obviously, right now, uh, with the current dynamics of global pandemics still sort of dominating access to the field and also these these subjects becoming increasingly sensitive like field work in china is becoming challenging uh so i am trying to carry on my observations of this kind of uh, relationship in a way that may be observed remotely uh so i've turned to the subject of online islamophobia uh looking at uh how Global tropes of Islamophobia, ones that are derived from perhaps the U.S.'s global war on terror or from paradigms that are established in relations between the Middle East and the West or, or other dynamics, are replicated in China and are enacted in Chinese uh, social media commentary about Muslims and how this leads to understandings of uh, what Chinese identity is, is, is understood to be and, and is talked about and, and how Muslims fit into that. Um, and increasingly, I'm also interested in the idea of synthesization, which kind of dovetails with this, sort of tracking and understanding the political and social goals behind synthesization as this leads to uh, continued political outcomes. So these are kind of where I'm, I'm looking for the future. Great. Yeah. Well, those sound like uh, excellent expansions and, and developments of uh, yeah, what is a very uh, solid solid basis and, and uh, a highly recommended book uh, for uh, really anybody, uh, I should say. Uh, so uh, I think um, uh, in a perhaps arguably non-halal fashion, a, a pint awaits us. Uh, so uh, I'll say, David, thank you very much for uh, appearing on the podcast. And uh, it's been great speaking to you. It was a great pleasure, Ed. I, I really appreciate it. Listeners, thank you too for listening as ever to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast channel on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye.